You have just listened to episode 97 of the Futurized podcast with host Trondane Unheim, futurist and author. The topic was, can the U.S. catch up to the globalization of SciTech? Our guest is Melissa Flagg, Senior Fellow at the Center for Security and Emerging Technology at Georgetown University. In this conversation, we talk about Melissa's upbringing in Missouri, her pharma PhD, her road trip in all 50 states, and how she currently is trying to turn moonshine into gin, her shamanic journey, and her views on security, sci-tech, and defense innovation. Why does the U.S. policy pretend it is 1975? The decentralization of SciTech globally, and why has the U.S. not noticed? Emerging security threats and challenges. Widening the scope of security threats to environmental challenges such as pandemics and climate change. And finally, we discuss science and optimism. Melissa, how are you today? I'm great. So great to be here. Thank you. Look, I think this is going to be... um, a discussion. I think it's going to be a discussion about globalization of science and technology, but we shall find out because, and the reason I say that is my previous discussion with you didn't, the topics were uh, different than we had thought. So let's start with this. Who is Melissa Flagg? This is what I'm going to try to find out. And I know a little bit about you. There's something about Columbia, Missouri in your background and in your present. And then there's something about pharma, except it's uh, kind of a non-traditional spin. And I had mischaracterized it earlier as like you are an expert in ethnobotany, which was wrong. So I want you to correct that. Uh, Of course, you've got a PhD. You've been road tripping. You're a traveler. You're a connector. Um, You told me you once turned moonshine into gin. I want to hear about that. Um, You've been on a shamanic journey. You're a Reiki master. And all of this before you got to Georgetown uh, or before we get to Georgetown and the security stuff. And, you know, you've been a very serious person in defense research. So, I, you know, I don't, that's why I'm saying I don't really promise anything about this conversation. I make <laughs> zero promises. I think the one thing you can safely say about me is that my life has not been linear. I, um, if there's one thing that I hate more than anything on earth, it's boredom. And um, I find that the minute that I feel like I've really mastered something is the minute I need something else to sort of get my mind spinning on. Um, so I, I'll give you maybe the five minute sort of trajectory of my life. I was born and raised in uh, Arkansas, Southeast Missouri, in a small town. Um, My parents uh, were first generation to college, and I wound up going to the University of Mississippi to get a pharmacy degree because where I was from, you were either going to be kind of a nurse or a teacher or a doctor or something, and I didn't like math enough to go into engineering. So I wound up in pharmacy school and very quickly realized, like, I am not good with sick people. And the pharmacist <laughs> that was working with me was like, you should really consider graduate school. <laughs> so I was also working in a laboratory at the time with this professor who did ice diving in Antarctica and he would collect sponges and he was looking for anti-cancer drugs. And I was like, oh my God, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Um, 
but I couldn't get a trip to Antarctica. So I wound up finding a professor who would send me to Brazil, where I trekked around the kind of low jungle in the north in Sierra. And I was like, well, this is definitely what I'm doing for the rest of my life, right? And I'm just going to be medicine man like Sean Connery in the 90s, right? So I go to get my PhD at the University of Arizona. I trek around the Atacama Desert in Chile. I get a PhD in natural products chemistry, which is really just drugs from plants. Uh, I had a botanist on my committee, but ethnobotany is a very specific thing. So out of deep respect for ethnobotany and all the ethnobotanists in the world, I would never call myself one. Um, I'm a chemist, but I very quickly realized that for every four months in the jungle or the desert, I was going to spend four years pipetting in the laboratory. And I was like, whoa, I'm way too much of an extrovert for this. So I wound up doing a policy fellowship to go to the State Department in Washington, D.C., where I had these dreams of sustainable development in Africa and all of these diplomatic things I was going to do. And then 9-11 happens the week I arrive in Washington, D.C., the world blows up. Nobody cares about sustainable development. And I'm a scientist at the State Department and everybody's like, can you explain anthrax? <laughs> I'm like, well, it's a natural product. So yeah, I can. And I suddenly found myself in this world full of security in the military and the intelligence community. And my boss really disliked the military. So he sent me to every meeting. My job was just to thwart them at every turn when they tried to keep foreign scientists from entering the country. And so maybe about two and a half years later, this guy that I'd helped at the Navy do some things over in the Baltics calls me up and says, we'd much rather have you on our team than against us. So like, do you want to come to London and work for the Navy? And I was like, uh, free rent in London? Yeah, I've always wanted to work for the Navy. In the meantime, like calling friends, what's the Navy? Like, what do they do? <laughs> I'm not going to be on a ship, am I? Um, so it was fabulous. I spent the next three years trekking around Europe, doing international engagement with the Navy. They sent me out on a ship for four days to learn what it was really like as a scientist to be out at sea. Um, and this just sort of started this trajectory where I focused on emerging technology in the military for many years. So I worked at the Navy. I worked at the Pentagon running a technology awareness program. Um, then I left government. I was never coming back. And I went to the MacArthur Foundation to work on the Genius Grants program in Chicago. And I absolutely loved it. It was like this beautiful sabbatical from all the badness of the world. And then I was offered the opportunity to go back to the Pentagon as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Research. So that's like code for the science guy at the Pentagon. So like the pointy cap guy, right, where somebody's like, I don't understand that. Give it to Melissa. Um, had great fun. That was at the end of the Obama administration. And then when um, the election happened and Trump was elected, I was offered generously the opportunity to find alternative employment. So, Oh, I really? You wouldn't fit <laughs> in in the Trump administration? I, I'm, a li I'm, a, I'm a lot for any administration, let's be honest. <laughs> so I put all my stuff in storage. I crossed the country twice in my Subaru, plug for Subaru. Um, 
I just met with all kinds of people. I ran my own consulting gig while I was on the road. I got a little grant from a foundation to just write some things about what I'd learned and where my mind was being changed on emerging tech. Um, Then I actually opened a lab for the Army and wound up in D.C. at the Center for Security and Emerging Tech at Georgetown, where I am now. But in the meantime, in every part of that cycle, I've always really tried to challenge the idea of science being about certainty. Um, In my life, science is actually the ultimate acceptance that we know nothing about the universe. Um, That science is a structure and it's a a framework for questioning this unknowable universe and just adding little bits of knowledge along the way. And so I've never really had a hard time kind of squaring that circle of the alternative or the mainstream, um, the military or the civilian. I feel like uh, I've tried to actually be a very well-rounded person when it comes to embracing all kinds of crazy. Wow. So this was a whirlwind, and I, I love the narrative flow here. I'm going to pick up on many things, but let's start with this. So you said something important about science, which is controversial, very controversial, because a lot of science, especially in the roles that you have had, is all about controlling the narrative, right? It's like science is important, science communication. We are the U.S. government. We should control a lot of these uh, narratives. And, you know, science now with COVID, like science is serious. We know what's going on. Um, but there, there is, of course, and it's not even an undercurrent, right? This is, I agree with you, this is science. Science is that endless frontier. So it's there's nothing finished ever about science, uh, you know, Absolutely. hard or soft, right? So that's fascinating that you have that that view. Um So here's my question to you then, very precise question. You seem to say, you told me, that the U.S. policy on science is uh, almost as if it was 1975. That, that, that demands a bit of an explanation. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. <laughs> right? Um, yeah, absolutely. So maybe just two minutes of framing what I mean. So... If you go all the way back to the 1700s, as we created this country out of groups of people that were persecuted for all kinds of reasons, right? You had a group of people in the founding fathers that were pretty distrustful of, uh, like, we weren't looking for another king, right? We were pretty distrustful of top-down structure. And so throughout our history, all the way up to the World Wars, the U.S. has this pattern of being very hesitant to allow for a lot of top-down. And when it comes to science, there's this historian, A. Hunter Dupre, who wrote this incredible treatise of science in the U.S. government from the 1700s to 1940. And it really is just this like repeating loop of like, we're not really trusting the government. You want an observatory? No. You want a national university? No. The military wants a university? Sure. The military wants an observatory? Okay. We're very willing as a people to sort of offer up to the military what they need to secure us, but we're very hesitant to have those rules apply to all of us as a nation. And so that's an interesting tension that plays out throughout our history. We come out of World War II and suddenly the world has been decimated, right? All of the leaders in science and technology, Germany, uh, France, the United Kingdom, 
they've all been destroyed. And there's this vacuum. And you have people like Vannevar Bush, the author of Science the Endless Frontier, and President Roosevelt at the time, who had this incredible vision. We have a lot of problems. We're bringing people home from the war. They need jobs. Science is a really amazing way to do this and to generate a real engine for our economy and to also um, take on an ability to really secure our nation in the future. So we go down this path of an incredible buildup. We create the Office of Naval Research. We create the National Science Foundation. We create NASA. We create DARPA. We create the Department of Energy. We create the Environmental Protection Agency. I mean, we just expand this incredible array of commitments to science and technology across almost every sort of topic you can imagine. And we do all of this from a very top-down perspective. The federal government is like 69% of American R&D funding, and we're almost the same as a percentage of global R&D funding at that time in the sort of uh, around 1970, roughly. Now you fast forward to today. And from the year 2000 to now, so 2021, the global research and development investment has tripled. We went from around $890 billion to over 2.2, to some estimates, $2.4 trillion of annual R&D investment globally. That's astounding. The U.S. is now around a quarter of that. China's around a quarter of that. But the rest of the world that quite frankly we talk very little about, is 50% of that. So we're talking over a trillion dollars. So no matter how much money, and, and oh, by the way, domestically in the United States, the federal government is now less than 25% of American R&D funding. So some estimates say 75, some say 78% is non-federal. And so the federal government is like, a quarter of the domestic, which is total a quarter of the global. But we're still making policy and we're still talking about the federal funding of science like it is the only source, like it is the primary source. And now if you think about the military especially, back in the, in the 70s, they were a primary customer of the high-tech industry. Today, they're a bit player. They're a primary customer for a few of the large defense primes like Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, Boeing, the, the uh, Northrop Grumman, the companies you know. But for many of the companies that we need technology from, like in the digital tech sector, um, we're, we're not even minor customers. We're not customers at all. And if we are, it really is a minority stake. And so the role that you have to play when you're a minority investor and a minority customer, both domestically and in the world, is very different than when you are the dominant force. But all of our structures and all of our policies and the way we hire and train all of our people is still in this mindset of top-down command and control, of we're the primary funder and the primary customer, and so you must work with us. But it's not true. And so the policies and the behaviors and the training and the roles of the people are misaligned to, quite frankly, just the reality of the United of the world. And I think 
what's so interesting is people quote Science the Endless Frontier endlessly. No pun intended. Um, the amazing thing about it is so few people have read it. It's only 44 pages. Everyone should go read it. It's on NSF's it's a good uh, website. Read, yeah. It's a great read. And the thing is, if you read it through the lens of what he did, of what Vannevar Bush did, he analyzed the context of the world. He understood the big problems the United States was facing. And then he thought, okay, what are the things that are absent in the ecosystem right now that could be a valuable contribution to solutions across all of these problems? Not how do I have a silver bullet to solve a big, hard problem? And so at that time, he made recommendations based on that context. But he would think we were crazy if he could look at what we were doing now. He would be saying, do what I did, not what I prescribed for problems of 1945. Like, figure out what your problems are, what's absent in the ecosystem, what could you change that could successfully contribute to solving the problems you have today. And so it frustrates me that we're so stuck on this conversation around just add $20 billion more per year to funding, federal funding of science, um, and we'll win. And it's like, but there's $2.4 trillion of R&D floating in the world. What am I winning with $20 billion more? Hmm. It's interesting because... The rest of the world has, for the last 30 years, tried to mobilize their own science funding using, and it was just funny when I didn't stop you because I, I hate to stop uh, my interviewees, but you you didn't mention the EU in your kind of rattle of like China, the US, you know. And and I think if you were the EU and you have been fighting for, for science funding and, you know, arguably built up the framework programs that, that have a certain size at this point, and they have worked very hard at building down actually some of the disciplinary boundaries because, you know, German and French science, even British science, but to a lesser degree, they weren't as multidisciplinary as they needed to be either. And they weren't as international as they needed to be. And everyone was always looking to the US where, you know, to paraphrase a little bit, it was an automatic international science only because the US in and of itself had so many people coming in. So you didn't actually have to work that hard to create perfect conditions for science. And I know I'm simplifying, but then you take that back to Europe, they struggle hard, and I've been involved in this. I have ran a lot of those projects. So we give up money only if you have X number of countries and institutions that are not the well-known institutions on your research proposal. So we, by default, they struggled and they have prevailed. And now, I arguably, the EU is a bit of a force in science, although it does cost a lot of money when you're spreading them thin like that. And, and you know, building institutions that are much more, not global, but in this case, you know, European in nature, uh, although there's actually funding also for outside regions, right? But um, it takes a toll. But, but it's just funny... Um, that I think the rest of the world still sort of thinks that the U.S. somehow is the leader, even though the inside picture and even just the statistics that you present show a different reality. So it's interesting. Um, 
I'm literally in review on a paper right now where we actually, for the first time, at least for me, did an analysis where we treated the European Union as a block. And we actually analyzed um, research publications in different areas of science. And you really do see the force of the EU um, when you do really analyze all of those nations together. And I think it's completely legitimate because of so many of these European Commission top-down uh, funding programs that we would do that. Um, and I, we also analyzed levels of international collaboration. And we, for again, we treated it as a block. So we didn't include internal EU collaboration. And you actually see a lot of growth of the EU collaborating outside of the EU as well over this time period, which is interesting. And I think um, really does speak to kind of what you're talking about. They do collaborate within the EU as well extensively, but even externally that has grown. I think that the interesting thing about the United States is, so first of all, a lot of analysis is done on a country by country basis. So you're looking at sort of Germany, not the EU, um, which is a ch is a challenge, right, when it comes to this type of analysis. Um, but I also think there is something about <laughs> the sheer confidence of a teenager, right, when we do just feel this right to this leadership position, and we feel it so deeply, and it has been so entrenched for the living kind of experience of most of the people around today that um, it's kind of hard, I think, for many people to imagine that it could just it could just fade away. I also think that for both the EU and the United States, one thing that people often don't think about is how much harder it is to maintain a lead in a legacy system where you're sustaining all of the things you've already grown. So the EU went through that you know, a long time ago, we went through this intense growth period in the 70s. And we're sort of figuring out what does it mean to sustain all the physical infrastructure, all the talent pipelines, um, etc. What you see with China is a nation that's really in this growth spurt, right? They're, they're us in the 70s. And so it creates this intense fear, um, which I think is challenging and counterproductive at times, because they're going to get to where we all are. We all go through these phases. So the question is, can we get through this period of intense growth in China um, in a peaceful way? And, and that's a question, right? I think it's that kind of growth is really stressful. Uh, so for me, this is less of a story about the U.S. or even just the U.S. and China in isolation. It's more of a story of the entire world, we stopped telling the story of the entire world and how much we doubled down on R&D in the last 20 years. That, that affects culture, that affects decisions, that affects the validity of your policies and your laws, that affects um, the need for different kinds of lawmakers. It's, it is a fascinating kind of undercurrent of this changing ecosystem that we really don't talk very much about. Well, there are many questions here, right? So one is your, your assumption that these 30 years have led the U.S. somehow to actually have a collective awareness beyond the some very small elite circles of what science actually and technology actually does in society. And I, w I wanted to challenge that a little bit. I mean, isn't it also 
so it's not just that the U.S., which you told me earlier, kind of militarily uh, has to be worried that it no, no longer maintains perhaps a technological superiority in all of the research fields uh, that it wanted to, which also has been kind of fairly open U.S. military and state doctrine, like this is what we need to do, superiority in, in various key scientific fields. So it's not only that, but it's also, I guess the question that comes to mind is, we have gone through arguably kind of the social media d decade where, you know, the, all of these sort of like, which I consider almost like epiphenomena sometimes. It's like, you know, we have lost faith in science or, or something. But where, where are you on that spectrum? Do you feel like are leaders broadly now, you know, absent perhaps some excesses of the Trump administration, but is there still this fundamental belief that stems from this 1970s investment? So, so or, or has that also started to decline? So it's interesting. I think if you go back to the 70s, one of the things that got lost between the reality and the rhetoric or like the reality and the mythology that came out of the reality, right, is that the 70s were an a decade of engineering, right? We were going to the moon. We did a bunch of science, right? But we were just slapping it onto rockets and shooting them up and seeing what happened, right? So it was this true marriage of science and engineering where there were no walls, there were no silos, there was no basic science that sat over here in a bucket by itself and like applied research and engineering over here. And so at the time when people thought about science, they thought about building a rocket. Nowadays, I think there is a consensus that technology is useful. There is less of a consensus that science is useful. And I think it's because we've separated science, trying to protect it over the last 30 years, we siloed it further and further away from applications. And that makes people think differently about science that's done in universities and technology that creates jobs and allows businesses to do things that they couldn't do before, right, et cetera. So I do think there's a little bit of a psychological separation that people don't think about or talk about very much especially in the United States, it's happening. I think more in the United States than in other places, most likely. The second thing I would say is that um, if you actually really read Science the Endless Frontier with this fine tooth comb, there's this one sentence towards the end that's never been quoted before me and will probably never be quoted after me, where he says, there is a potential problem with what we're doing. And that is that when we separate the problems that come from states and localities and companies uh, too far from the people who fund the science and do the science, when we separate these two things, there is a possibility that at some point your science will no longer actually be in service of problems and people won't like it very much. Well, fast forward to today, we had a proliferation of agencies that fund science, which he never envisioned. And we isolated basic science so much that we actually said, you can't have an application 
in mind or it's not science. And we created an, a generation or two or three generations of academic scientists that believed they were the intellectually pure, right? They were this place where true intellectual curiosity was all that mattered. That is never what Vannevar Bush said, and it is never what he intended. He believed that science was in service of solving human problems. Um, but I think that we have a lot of work to do to actually mend some of those fences. And I think that if we get serious about it and if government cares, there are things we can do. Um, and they are things that the United States, when we are at our best and we play to our strengths, they are things we are very good at. But right now we're so mired in this 1970 mindset that we haven't even started thinking about these solutions as necessary. Well, Melissa, this is, again, super controversial to many, right? Because science as an ivory tower and basic science, which is the phrase, I guess, you know, there are so many who would say this is under attack. Why would you of all people start to attack this notion that we need to heed and protect? But but I fundamentally think I agree with you. I mean, one of the reasons I left academia was this sense that even, you know, even in sort of technological institutes, certainly uh, in Europe at times, there was this very big distinction. Uh, and certainly if you were not, weren't doing science or, and if you were doing kind of like what has been called soft science, then you were just relegated to like, you're just looking at the consequences or the ethics or some abstract crazy thing that we really don't care about, but some politicians care about. So we're funding 5% of that. And in actual fact, of course, the, you know, quite the opposite seems to be relevant right now. If you don't understand what the science is going to give you, you haven't understood even the science. So right. Just, right. So I guess one thing I'd really like to say is, so I'm not saying we shouldn't, I, I know what the way I talk is very controversial. I'm not saying we shouldn't fund or protect science. I am a true believer. However, I feel like the way we're doing it is now incentivizing like all the wrong aspects, right? So right now we fund projects. So a professor writes a proposal to whatever, name your agency, National Science Foundation, NIH, uh, ONR, whatever. And that agency is going to measure you on what kind of publications did you get? What kind of prizes came out of it, right? Like there's going to be, and then you're going to write some report that's not going to get aggregated in some like knowledge base that's public that says, these are all, this is what we know now that we didn't know before we funded it. They're going to say, go to these publications, right? This is the output of the project is these publications, my feeling is that that then incentivizes all this weird behavior, right? It incentivizes a professor to pay a non-living wage to a bunch of graduate students and postdocs because they need to get as many on the project as they possibly can. It also incentivizes many professors to just hand projects to graduate students rather than to because they need somebody to plug into this grant they have and finish this work instead of saying, sit for a year and figure out the most interesting, amazing question that stimulates your curiosity, that expands the frontiers of knowledge, right? Which is what a PhD used to kind of be. <laughs> um, we also don't incentivize them to 
sort of give freedom to this pipeline of people to say, we want you to graduate as fast as possible, get into the workforce, share your knowledge with us, right? We incentivize these professors to drag out these PhDs to five, six, seven years to two two different postdoc rounds. So we're telling people, oh, we have a STEM shortage, science matters so much, but you're going to make minimum wage for 10 years and not have a retirement account and not be able to start a family or buy a house because you're intellectually pure. So in my mind, if we really want to fund science because we care about our nation and we care about our security and we want the best minds and ideas, we should start thinking about funding teachers who teach and inspire so that people want to go into science. We should start thinking, and that should be R&D dollars. Let's develop the curriculum. Let's share the online courses free to any university that doesn't have a high quality professor in artificial intelligence, right? Um, Let's actually fund people, right? So instead of just funding projects, let's put money on grad students, postdocs, professors, that where the money travels with them, not with the project in the university, right? Let's actually put minimum wages for grad students and postdocs on the grant requirements for these funding agencies. Let's start grant programs like the Defense University Research Infrastructure Program, DURAPS, that actually fund instrumentation and infrastructure for science. Industries Industry's perfectly willing to fund uh, a physics project if they're trying to develop a talent pipeline and hire, convince people to come work for them. They're funding basic science. Go talk to Lockheed Martin sometime. They fund so much interesting basic science because they want to be face-to-face with the best grad students in the world and try to convince them to come to Lockheed Martin when they graduate, right? But what they're not going to do is fund a whole bunch of people at a whole bunch of universities and a whole bunch of professors and a whole bunch of infrastructure just to make the American foundations of science better. The other thing is we're so busy trying to solve big problems that somehow we lost sight of like, we got a whole bunch of small problems that we ignore because they're not like interesting enough for science. And so why don't we start matching grants with industry and philanthropy and states to put into land-grant universities to actually collaborate with the community to bring science and engineering to solve problems that matter to those communities. Wouldn't it be interesting if we had the Great Lakes states get together and say, we really ca- this is our water source. We really care about this microplastics problem because this is our water source. So let's just solve it. And the federal government was like, well, it's not our highest priority thing for basic science, but if you can get enough people together to meet X amount of money, we'll match it. And now you've got industry and now you've got philanthropies and academic endowments and other actors that may be very interested in coming together to say, look, we're a part of the community. We really want to solve your problems. This, again, is this mindset change. If you're not command and control top down, if you're an amplifier of a decentralized ecosystem, then the role you play is different. And maybe you're not the only person that prioritizes what questions get asked and answered by science. You're actually helping crowdsource what are the most important challenges we need to tackle 
where can science and engineering be a part of that solution and how can we make that possible? Um, you're more of like a member of the board rather than the chairman of the board, right? But that's a very different mindset. And so I do believe science is critical and I do believe it needs to be protected, but I think isolating it has made it more vulnerable in this moment in time than it has been since the 19, since 1910. <laughs> you know, uh, when you're talking, I'm sort of reminded of uh, this distinction that is often made sort of between not just science and engineering and science and technology, but, you know, with the application fields as well. And sometimes I think uh, what happens in science also happens to technology because you could say, if you were critical, that a lot of what's t labeled enabling technology and, and really is important as like platform technologies for the future, it's much easier to sell that as a thesis than to sell the problems that you're actually trying to solve, which arguably are much more important. So if I say this is going to be a discussion about synthetic biology, nanotech, quantum uh, with AI and add some 3D printing and some IoT in there for good measure, you know, I had a whole career selling those kinds of labels to executives from all around the world when I was selling MIT's goods. And it's, I have realized that it's kind of a shortcut because nobody really needs these technologies. They have, you know, in the case of whether it's Lockheed or, you know, Nestle or Nike or whoever it is, Disney, they have problems. They don't have technologies that they need. They may right. come to you and say, we need a technology, but you scratch a little behind the surface. They have a problem, not a need for a technology. It is really interesting, this, um, the fact that it's so much sexier to fund quantum or AI than it is to like solve a logistics problem. Right. Now, quantum and AI are incredible enablers for optimization problems that are like too hard for us to compute right now and all these other things. So AI and quantum are useful. Like we need to do that. But the logistics problem is what we care about. However, it's not sexy. We've been talking about it for a hundred years. Like nobody wants, nobody except the logisticians want to talk about that, right? They all want to be the cool, the cool kid who's on the cutting edge, you know, who's thinking about it's a race for the future. And it's like, well, yes, I'm a firm believer we should be funding great science. However, I think in the desire to jump on a bandwagon continually for the next cool, sexy thing, we first of all, don't use the science we've developed. We don't spend time extracting it from those the scientific literature and actually putting it in front of people. We don't make IP free. We don't require universities like, hey, the Bidolac in the 80s, we started giving all the IP back to universities and companies from the government. Great, except most professors don't want to be founders. So that I and that IP, every university wants to get rich on their IP. So most of it's just locked up in a trunk at the and sunk to the bottom of the ocean. Like, I think there should be a point where if you're not, if you haven't used it in the first four or five years, it goes into the public domain or it goes up for, to be auctioned off for a dollar to somebody who's going to use it. Like, I don't care, 
But right now we have these hyper protective systems in place of publications that we have to pay for, of patents that you can't access that are being held by people who don't want to do anything with them except put it on their resume. And so we have all of these structures that are actually incentivized to make sure we don't use our science. It's so weird. (laughs) Yeah. I have a question for you. What do you think about nation states in this game? So it's funny. I was actually talking with some folks at the um, Geotech Center at the Atlantic Council about this uh, the other night. And um, I, I have this feeling that there's sort of a parallel universe that's been created already that we don't really talk about, although um, I, I, we do talk about it some. So for me, it's not like a question of do we have nation states or do we not, right? Although nation states aren't that old. They've only existed for a few hundred years, really, right? So it's not like, oh, we've always had countries, we always will. It's like, no, it's not really how the world worked for the vast majority of human existence. Um, But, you know, the status quo is hard to change radically overnight, so we probably have them for a while. But in my mind, there are all these interesting examples where we're creating these these layers where, okay, I'm a citizen of a country, but maybe I opt into a global group that helps me access education. Um, I join, I become a citizen of this group. I have certain responsibilities to that group. Maybe it's maybe it's taxes. Maybe it's I have to contribute a certain kind of labor. Uh, maybe I have to contribute a certain kind of comp- access to compute on my system. I mean, whatever, right? There are a lot of ways you can imagine paying in to your citizenship. And then I get out of that free access to certifications and education for in certain areas or something. I can imagine doing that actually with healthcare. So interestingly, um, I've been looking at alternative approaches to healthcare, and I'm looking now at a, a concierge medicine group and a health shares group where you're completely out of the system and you have daily, you have access within 24 hours to your doctor. You pay in a certain amount. It's much cheaper than health insurance, um, but everything is basically covered and my actual access to care is much higher. But you're basically buying into a community, and once you have a critical mass of the community, it's self-sustaining. So in my mind, there are so many examples of this that are beginning to be created where, okay, government, I pay my taxes, but you're not really giving me all the needs I have for education, for healthcare, for some of these other things that are essential to me. Maybe clean food is another one, right? We see a lot of co-ops being created. That at some, when does there come a point when some of these alternatives begin to be bundled into just join us? And I'm suddenly opting out for 50% of my life to a group that's separate from the country I reside in. I, so I, I appreciate that nation states will try to destroy this and they will drive to a more authoritarian edge uh, to disallow this type of thing to be disruptive for their tax bases. I appreciate this as just the way of control and power and humans. Um, but I 
am definitely not a believer, as some people who argued vehemently against my somewhat, although I don't find this to be a controversial opinion, but apparently it is in some circles. Um, I just don't think the nation state is as robust of a structure as we would like to believe over time. Well, it's not so robust. And is it because it has lost a lot of its functions and isn't sort of delivering? Or is it because we, this decentralizing force of science and technology and other things happening are just giving us you know, more options? I mean, is it, is, it the, is it a former or the latter? I mean, maybe it's both. I, I think like look at, look at the continent of Africa and how unstable this concept of nation states has been there right? Because communities, um, whether they're tribal communities, uh, religious communities, have really provided for people. They've, they've been the source of kind of stability and, and access to resources and basic human needs for, I mean, thousands of years, right? And so this idea that we placed arbitrary nation states on top of it that did not, in fact, do a good job providing those needs as a replacement for the communities that they were um, formerly aligned to shows why it doesn't work, right? I think what's interesting is nation states in wealthier countries, I think, were very robust because the state could actually pick up and support a lot of these needs that people had. Um, that being said, I don't see a reason why the nation state, I don't see a reason why we just assume the nation state stays. We have very good examples in the world of boundaries not being sort of stable and reasonable. Um, and so I, I guess, just, it, I guess part of the discussion is that people have a hard time imagining you know, what then? Because they're, they're looking at networks and they're looking at networks today and they're thinking they're so fleeting and they can't support. They're not an organizational structure I can trust. Even if they look at regions, they're sort of thinking, yeah, there's regions like in Europe, for instance, right? There's discussion of regionalism, but, but many of those regions are fairly small and would have a really hard time certainly outside of the EU, but even inside of the EU, they would require a lot of support for, in order to, 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 to basically provide those basic functions and be a functioning economy to its citizens. So, um, but what you seem to have in mind is an, an organizational partnership type approach with an alliance between, I guess, various players, which, which I'm sort of, I have at least come to think that we need when it comes to issues such as digitalization, right? Because it's not enough anymore to just talk about general interoperability and like standards bodies and stuff. Because, yeah, actually, I, I wanted to ask you about this. There's so much discussion now about should we regulate algorithms? And then, you know, the, the idea is, oh, no, let's not do that because it's too complicated. But, but the alternative to regulating algorithms, you know, what is that really? We're not going to have some sort of agreement about what's going to be the principles running our world? I mean, are you going to abdicate? So at some point, whether it's governments or it is kind of a stakeholder governance concept of 
a bunch of different entities, somebody has to weigh in, right? So it's interesting. I do think in technology specifically, and when we really think about networks and artificial intelligence and some of these other kind of digital technologies, um, it's more interesting in that these have a very rapid pace of refresh, right? They're changing at a much more rapid rate because it's low capitalization. It's, it's not like kind of big hardware where you have to build another big prototype and test it. It's really just fast and easy to, to test and refresh. Um, I do think that the idea that governments, especially democratic governments that rely on kind of conversation and consensus, right, to make decisions about technologies that they don't understand at the pace of the technology. Like, I don't really feel like federal policy is a viable structure as your sole source of governance for something like the internet. And I do feel like having actual groups of people as elitist as it likely becomes and sounds, right, who actually know how it works, getting together and really proposing ways to go forward is important. Now, thinking about inclusivity and making sure that you don't have uh, uh an incredible amount of bias that gets baked into that because you lack diversity on those panels of all kinds, right? Experience and ethnicity and gender and all, all kinds of diversity is, is problematic. I mean, in my mind, this isn't something that people are going to make a decision about. The government's going to say, that's our job. Don't do that. Other people are going to say, you're not doing your job. So we're going to do, we're going to take it into our own hands. We're going to have these sort of interesting parallel universes that arise and then, like, something happens, right? My biggest concern, and I've, I've heard this talked about more in the conspiracy theory community than maybe in the mainstream, but I think even in the mainstream, you're hearing more of it now, is that if we aren't careful, we're going to wind up with a quote-unquote internet that's like the U.S. internet, the China internet, the EU internet, right? Because we're all going to want our own rules. It's not even just an authoritarianism problem, right? It's like, I, I want my privacy rules and my data rules and my transparency rules. And we came up, we finally came up with our own and it took us a long time to do it. So now unless you play by our rules, you don't come into our country. And then there are going to be these groups that are like, this is not what the internet was supposed to be. And they're going to be figuring out ways to create pipes across these, these islands. Right. And, to me, that's a metaphor for nation states and these kind of parallel uh, organizations that are likely going to be created around all kinds of things is that I don't know where that ends. It's probably not somewhere. It's not somewhere where the journey to that destination is a happy one or a pleasant one. There's probably a lot of fighting along the way. Um, but I don't see how we can sustain the path we're on with this very slow governance process that's relatively lacking in education being layered on top of the pace of technological development that actually impacts citizens in their homes um, being so disconnected. I, so I don't know that I have, I mean, I don't have an answer for you. I guess I know I don't have an answer for you. I have, a, I have an, an imagination of that future that's not the future I'd like. Um, and so I work with places like the Geotech Center because I'd like to believe that smart, caring people getting together and talking across borders and across disciplines um, can at least try to find ways to make sure that 
the pipes exist, if not the whole internet. So let's look at the big alternatives. I mean, is the alternative a global constitutional convention, finally, to say, like the founding fathers that you started this conversation with, that, you know, we are really worried about who is ruling us. We don't think it's fair, but but it has to be a global situation. Or will there be these parallel tracks with many sort of topic-based organizations where, you know, one is dealing with technology and one is dealing with food supply? And, and, and also, will these be geographically based, do you think? Or, or are they just overlapping partnerships that have nothing to do neither with geography, which is very embedded in the nation-state concept, nor are they going to be global because perhaps that's just too ambitious. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think the global thing is just, it's really hard when we don't have agreement and we have a rising sort of bilateral power standoff between pretty fundamental values of openness, transparency, the role of the citizen, the role of the government um, in relation to their citizens. And so I think, you know, we talk a lot about like rising authoritarianism, et cetera, et cetera. But for me, these are just fundamentally different viewpoints on the relationship between the citizenry and its government. I don't think you can get a global agreement on um, sort of value-based things when there are two fundamentally deeply held opposing sets of values, right? Um, well, these you are assuming that these are shared values in those uh, geographies, but what if they're actually? You're assuming that there's going to be a treaty-based global convention. I was more thinking, what if people just oh. arise and say, beyond the states, let's forget, you know, creating a yeah. new United Nations. Let's just rethink it like you, you know, you started with the founding yeah. fathers. They didn't ask anybody's permission. In fact, they said goodbye, kings. Right. Truth. Yeah, no, that's a super fascinating perspective, something I've never actually heard discussed in policy circles and something I'd it love to... It could be a reason see. why, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but something I'd love to start throwing out, right? It's like, look, people have lost their sense of autonomy, I think, by and large, and there's a lot of frustration. And you see a really different perspective on autonomy in this... N- younger generation, um, especially I think in the US and Europe, I don't, I don't have as much direct experience in Asia. Um, so it's, it's super interesting. I also think that the topic based stuff is just supernatural because people speak a language regardless of what, uh, national language they speak, right? There's a technical language or a jargon language in each of these domains that does bind people. Um, And so I do think it's really easy to have these things sort of coalesce around another commonly shared set of not necessarily values, but passions, right, and and knowledge base. And so I do think you're going to see a lot of topic-based sort of uh, efforts and um, pilot programs and work that could benefit a lot from cross-pollination, but probably don't benefit much from that in the early stages while they're just trying to figure out what works and what doesn't work. So I don't actually think it's bad. 
I think geography makes sense in areas like agriculture where like supply chains really matter, right? I think it, geography makes a lot of sense with issues like water because like it's geographically based, right? Yeah. Um, and these are things we all need. I don't think geography matters as much on stuff like, or should matter as much on stuff like education or even healthcare. Honest, I mean, healthcare, it does at the catastrophic end, but on the wellness side, um, there's so much we can do that's not that doesn't require the one-on-one. So I feel like there's a big divide in how technologies can support some domains and relieve them of the constraint of geography much more easily than other domains. Speaking of that topic, where are you on your shamanic journey? My <laughs> shamanic journey. So I was sitting around at the Pentagon one day in I don't know, back in like 2011 or 2012 or something. And I was like, this is not fun, right? I mean, I'm working from like, I don't know, 4.35 in the morning to like six or seven at night. Like I got to take a vacation and I need to mix it up, right? Like I need to challenge the fact that this is like an acceptable way to live my life. I'm going to die in the Pentagon. They have these little golf carts. They drive around in the Pentagon with these pink blankets from like the 60s and 70s. And they pick up sick people from their offices, right? And they have these defibrillators in all the hallways. And I'm like, like, what's the worst thing I can imagine? Like the worst possible way to die is to be- It's like inside the Pentagon. Yeah. Hauled out in a golf cart under a pink blanket or the indignity of one of my like colleagues, you know, trying to bring me back with a defibrillator in the middle of the floor, right? Like, no. So I was having a little bit of a crisis, right? So I decided, I just started Googling and I decided I, I would go on this shamanic journey. I did not use any drugs for everyone listening. Yes, I had a security clearance. I did not do ayahuasca. <laughs> like, so I didn't do... For me, there's a little bit of cultural appropriation with the whole ayahuasca thing. And I, because I did spend a lot of time in South America and I did spend a lot of time really focusing on chemistry of plants, I'm very respectful of it. And I do sometimes get a little concerned that people don't realize like there's real chemistry in those plants, like they are right. drugs. And so I, but I did do this whole three day thing with this shaman when they take you through finding your spirit animal and all this crazy stuff, right? And there I am, I don't know, dancing around in a fake canoe like a bear or something and laughing because I'm like, this is the craziest thing I've ever done. But when I left it, what I realized was that I had learned a few techniques for separating myself from my emotional state, much like meditation, there were just some techniques I learned that allowed me while I was at the Pentagon to realize like I'm starting to get caught up in this moment and I could do this set of things and separate myself from it, almost like putting myself in an observer role and step back and say, like, that's silly. Like they have a narrative that they've created and they've sketched out a role for me in their narrative and I'm playing it like an actor and I can just choose to opt out of that narrative. And it was probably the most powerful thing I've ever learned in my life is to be able to look at someone, no matter how powerful they are in my life at the moment and say, like, I'm going to opt out of playing that role you wrote for me. I'm going to write my own role. 
and I did wind up leaving. I, uh, I also got very sick while I was at the Pentagon. I started blacking out and I was losing my hair. I just was working too much. And so I got trained in Reiki because I, I had tried the doctors and nobody had been able to help me. And I tried acupuncture and it hadn't helped. And so I, I was trained in Reiki, attuned and trained in Reiki. And I never did it on other people. I only do it on myself. But I was able to really start to stabilize my own, again, my emotional state. And I think it's amazing how much of our physical... Um, our physical state is tied to our emotional state, right? And so I think this idea of whether it's meditation or shamanic journeys or Reiki, all of it for me has been learning how to stop allowing somebody to write the script for me and to basically say, I write my own character role. I'm the producer. When I come and visit your movie and you've written a role for me, I may or may not play it, but it will be a choice and I will make that choice autonomously and I will accept and live with the consequences of it. Um, it's very distressing for people when you opt out of playing the role they write for you. You lose some friends. <laughs> uh, I also wouldn't encourage you to run around the Pentagon telling people you went on a shamanic journey over the weekend. Um, but I... I have like zero embarrassment about it. I feel like there are way too many people getting hauled out of the Pentagon on golf carts under pink blankets, and I will never be one of them. <laughs> Look, I think it's so uh, it's so brave and it's so uh, profound that you can move effortlessly between these different realms of thinking and action. <laughs> Let me say, let me put it that way. <laughs> and I think that is liberating for the mind and I'm sure for the body and the spirit. So these are good things. And um, I think we'll have to schedule a separate podcast to talk about natural plants and uh, Reiki and uh, all, all good things. But it seems to me that the hour is up and we should probably, for the respect of listeners, just sort of stick to the basic contract and we'll, we'll leave that for next time. And I thank you so much for <laughs> For sharing, and we shall find out. It, it, we did do some of that globalization of SciTech in the end. So I feel good about this. I think that we delivered what we promised. And then we just added a little spice to the soup. <laughs> yeah. Now, there should be no complaints from this podcast. I want that to be stated. All right. Thanks a lot, Melissa. Thank you so much. You have just listened to episode 97 of the Futurized podcast with host Ronarne Unhang, futurist and author. The topic was, can the U.S. catch up to the globalization of SciTech? In this conversation, we talked about Melissa Flagg's upbringing in Missouri, her pharma PhD, her road trip in 50 states, trying to turn moonshine into gin, and why does the U.S. defense policy, innovation policy, pretend it's 1975? We discussed emerging security threats and widening the scope of security to environmental challenges. My takeaway is that SciTech is in a global state, but governments are still in their national state. How long can this last? Regions such as the EU have made great strides to internationalize funding and collaboration, and so have many smaller, agile nation-states. 
China is rising faster than almost anybody had predicted, both in research dollars, number of researchers, and in specific strategic domains such as AI. Can the US get away with not doing so? Can it still lead? Does it even currently lead? Many questions here, and a lot of change underway. Stay tuned as we explore this in further episodes of Futurized. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurized.org or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you like this topic, you may enjoy other episodes of Futurized, such as episode 69 on the future of quantum security, episode 14 on post-pandemic tech, or episode 84 on the origins and the future of open science. Futurized, preparing you to deal with disruption.